Thank you, Darby. Let's go ahead and give Darby and Tia a great so we are starting a new series, and uh, I think the best way to start out the series is by asking this question. Have you ever been hurt, abused, have you ever been betrayed, have you ever been offended? And if you've been alive for more than 30 seconds, your answer to probably those questions is probably Yes, at some point you have been. You probably, maybe even today, maybe even this week, certainly this month sometime. If you've been alive, you've been hurt by somebody, you've been betrayed, you've, you've had something done against you that's wrong. And when you get hurt, you either live in your hurt or you forgive. You either desperately hold on to your heartache or you forgive. And I remember when I was a boy um, in elementary school, Every time the teacher would send us into the bathrooms, you know, there was no teacher in there. She was a she was a woman. There was this one kid, his name was Jamie, and he was this tall, skinny kid, and I was a short, fat kid, and he would kick me. You know, I'd go up to the bathroom, use the bathroom, and the kid just kicks me the whole time. And I was like, man, I hate this kid. And then I remember my mom said, hey, I met this lady at church, and we're going to go over and play at her um, you are going to go over and play with her son. He's about your same age. And I said, what's his name? She said, Jake. Yeah. It was the same kid who beat me up all the time at school. And I was like, I do not want to go to this house. But I remember I went over to his house, and we looked at each other. And he's like, that's the kid I kick. And I looked at him and said, that's the kid who kicks me. And he goes, I have a Super Nintendo. And all of a sudden, I forgave everything that he had done to me. Every time he had kicked me. And it was like, okay, we started playing Super Nintendo, we played for a couple hours while our moms talked, and uh, Jamie became one of my best friends in elementary school. He didn't kick me anymore, we were friends. And I feel like when you were a kid, forgiving people was pretty easy. Like, you'd get in a fight on the playground, and then you're like, sorry, and the next day you're sitting together at lunch, and you're okay. But as you get older, things get more painful, and you start to hold on to these pain. I mean, I've dated people who have cheated on me. I've had landlords who robbed me of thousands of dollars. I've had other pastors who said lies about me and tried to destroy my ministry. I'm like, we're supposed to be on the same side here. What are you doing? And so there's some deep, real hurts as you become adults that you just can't laugh off anymore or say, I forgive you and move on. And what I want to talk about in this series over the next few weeks is how do you forgive people when you've been hurt, when you've been offended, when you've been wrong, when you've been deeply, deeply I, I think psychology is just now beginning to catch up to Jesus on this. I bought a uh, psychology magazine this week because the title caught my eye and it said, Forgiveness is good for you. And I was like, well, I'm talking about forgiveness. I should get this and read this. And psychologists now are agreeing with what Jesus said all along, that when you forgive, something happens in you. It's not just that you're freeing someone else from the pain um, uh, that you're holding on to, something happens inside of you. And psychologists tells us that when we forgive other people, when we release them from holding on to this pain and hurt that they've given us, that forgiving people makes us more hopeful, happy, and productive people. Whereas if you hold on to an event, you hold on to something where you've been hurt, it actually chokes joy out of your life. It leads to depression and anger and ultimately sees us withdrawing from the world. This is what psychologists are telling us. People who don't even believe there is, there is a God, they're beginning to agree with what Jesus said all along, that forgiving others is good for us. And the Bible talks a lot about forgiveness. It's one of the, the central themes 
in the New Testament, and really the whole Bible, is this idea of forgiveness. And tucked into the back of the New Testament is this tiny letter, it's literally one page. It's super short, and it's this tiny letter that Paul, an early church leader, wrote to a small church in the town of Colossae. And if you've ever read the book of Colossians, that letter was also written to the same group. They probably had a couple of churches. We think, some scholars think there were probably two churches here in Colossae, and the, the letter to Colossians was written to them both. But this letter to Philemon was actually written to this one church that met in Philemon's house. And this letter is so highly specific it's like we really get into some personal, intimate details between these two people, and it's interesting that this was included in our Bibles, and it tells us a lot about forgiveness. So a little bit of background on this letter so we can understand what's going on here. Philemon and his wife, Athea, they had a church that met in their house. From what we can tell in the letter, they were probably quite wealthy. They had a lot of money. They probably had a large home, and so the church met in their home. Uh, you see, and we're going to look in just a minute at Philemon chapter 1. In the first couple of verses, Paul gives us some details. The church meets in their house. Archippus is the pastor there, and uh, it meets in Philemon and Aphia's house. And like most wealthy people in the Roman Empire, they had slaves. Now, slavery in the Roman Empire, we'll talk about as this series goes on, it looked different than the horrifying slavery that we know in the U.S., and that's what we usually think of. Uh, when we hear slavery, but things worked a little bit differently here. And so while it was not ideal, while it was not moral, at the same time it wasn't as bad as what we had here in America. And one of Philemon's slaves by the name of Onesimus stole a large sum of money from his master and ran away to Rome and was going to just live it up in freedom. Now when he went to Rome, he had a chance encounter with a man named Paul, and Paul told him about Jesus, and Onesimus becomes a follower of Jesus, and you know what they find out? They have mutual friends, because Paul knew Philemon, Onesimus, his master. And so he runs away to the city of millions of people, and he happens to find someone who's also a follower of Jesus, like his master had been, and now he finds this man, Paul, who says, you know what, you've become a follower of Jesus, now you have to go back to your master and ask for forgiveness. And so really this whole letter is about Paul sending a letter with Onesimus, and Onesimus is going back to the man he stole from, the man he betrayed, the man he left, and he's gonna hand him this letter from Paul and say, will you forgive me? I found Jesus, will you forgive me? And so Paul writes this letter to Philemon, and he says, this is what I think you should do, this is how I think you should forgive me. So before we jump into that story and start pulling out some things about forgiveness, and what I think Paul is teaching us about forgiveness in this letter, I want to answer a few lies that float around about forgiveness. Because sometimes you hear things, and people say them a lot, so we start to think they're true, even if maybe they're not. Forgiveness doesn't mean there wasn't an offense. Just because you forgive someone, that doesn't mean they didn't hurt you. That doesn't mean that there wasn't something that was done wrong. In fact, if you have to forgive someone, that means there was something there to forgive. And I think sometimes we think, well, if I forgive them, that's acting like it didn't mean anything or it wasn't that bad. Forgiveness doesn't mean that you were hurt. It just means that you aren't judged. You know that you're not the judge God is, and so you're not going to be the one to hold on to this. Forgiveness also doesn't mean that there aren't consequences. I remember I was teaching in a small group in Tennessee, and there was a lady whose husband was beating her and the children. And uh, she finally got out of that situation, and I began teaching about forgiveness 
one night and she said to me, so if I forgive my husband, does that mean I need to go back and live with him again? And I said, no. I said, you need to forgive him so that you're not actively pursuing and wanting and desiring harm to come to him, but you do not return to a place where he was harming you. There's consequences for those actions. He did something violent and abusive and wrong, and so you need to separate from him. But forgiveness means you're not going to wake up in the morning and say, I really hope the car gets it. Or I really hope that somebody comes along and just breaks his kneecaps. And uh, we've all, at certain points, when we've been hurt bad enough, we think, man, it'd be just so great if that person just walked out into traffic, or if that person lost their job, or if something horrible happened to that person. Forgiving means that you want to see the best for someone. You don't want to see them suffer and perish and get what they deserve for what they did for you. But it doesn't mean that you ignore what happens, and it might mean that you put boundaries on your relationship. The third lie I think that a lot of times people believe is that forgiveness is a moment. That one day you're just going to wake up and be like, you know what? Those people deeply wronged me, but today I forgive them. Forgiveness is a process. It's not going to happen all at once. Just like when you decide to get healthy, you don't just wake up one day and be like, I'm 30 pounds lighter. I feel so much better. No, it's a process. You start on diet and exercise so that you can reach healthiness. If you're waiting for the day when you wake up and think, it's all good now, I forgive them, then you're going to be waiting forever. It will never come. Most of us think that we're going to wait until the day when we feel like forgiving, but the Bible teaches something interesting, that the act of obedience precedes the feeling of wanting to obey. And so doing the right thing precedes the emotion that follows. And so the emotion becomes uh, the, the satisfaction of doing it, that you desire doing it, comes after you take that step of faith and actually do it. Emotion follows an act of obedience instead of preceding it. And so when you begin to take steps of forgiving, you'll begin to feel like forgiving as you take those steps. If you wait until you feel like forgiving, you just will never, ever forgive. And then the last lie I think sometimes I hear people say is they're like, um, well, that forgiveness isn't fair. Well, this one is kind of true. Forgiveness isn't fair. If it was fair, every time somebody did something wrong in the world, they would be punished. They would be destroyed. They would be... Uh, they would have to pay for that. That would be fair. But that means we'd also have to pay for all the things that we do and all the times we offend everybody. Forgiveness isn't fair. If it was, whether people intentionally or unintentionally hurt us, they would always be punished. Whether we unintentionally or intentionally hurt people, we'd always be punished. But Jesus isn't fair with us, and that's a good thing. The Bible describes how Jesus shows us undeserved goodness our lives. Every good thing we have in our lives is an undeserved gift from God. And forgiveness isn't fair. And if we're going to show forgiveness, we have to get past this idea of, well, that's not fair. They hurt me. Why should I just freely forgive them? We're not doing it because they deserve it. We're not doing it because we're fair. We're doing it because it's right. And it's what Jesus would do and what he has done with us. So let's jump into this letter from Paul and see what he tells us about forgiving. And we're going to look at Philemon verses 1 through 10. See, what chapter? Well, there's only one chapter. There's only one text. So, it starts out like this. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother. So, Paul's imprisoned in Rome. He's in prison because he's a follower of Jesus, and he's been telling other people that Jesus is God. And the Romans said, no, Caesar is God, and so they imprisoned him. And Timothy, who we have the letters to 1st and 2nd Timothy, 
Timothy written to, he's there with him and um, working alongside him while he's in prison. He's writing this letter to Philemon, who he calls a dear friend and co-worker, and to Athea, our sister, this is Philemon's wife, and to Archippus, this is the pastor, he calls our fellow soldier and in the church that meets in your home. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he immediately jumps into the letter. He says, I'm always thanking God when I mention you in my prayers, because I hear of how you love all the saints and the faith that you have in the Lord Jesus. I pray that your participation in the faith may become effective through knowing every good thing that is in us for the glory of Christ. For I have great joy and my encouragement from your love, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you, brother. For this reason, although I have great boldness in Christ, and I could command you to do what is right, I instead appeal to you on the basis of love. I'm Paul, I'm an old man, and I'm a prisoner for Jesus. I appeal to you for my son in the faith, Onesimus. I became his father while I was in chains. And so we'll, uh, over the next couple of weeks, we'll kind of get the rest of the story and see how some of this story fleshed out. But I think there's already some principles here about forgiving, forgiving that we can pull out. First of all, you see in verse 4, Paul, the first thing he does is he says, you know what, I thank God every time I pray. I thank God for you, Philemon. I hear about the way that you live, the way that you love the saints and the faith that you have. And when it comes to forgiving, so many times our focus is so much on our hurt and on our pain and on where we've been uh, deeply wounded that we ignore all the exciting ways that Jesus has been overwhelmingly generous with us. Paul says he always takes time every time he prays to thank God, because there's always more to thank God for than there is to complain about. And often our hurt, that place in our life where we refuse to forgive, it blinds us to how generous God has actually been with us in all the other areas of our life. Refusing to forgive actually chokes joy out of all the places where things are going well. And then if you look down here at verse 5, it says, because I hear of your love for all the saints and the faith that you have in the Lord Jesus Christ. He, he praises Philemon and he says, I know you're ultimately going to forgive, as a, he gets to it in the letter, because there's two things I know about you. You have love and you have faith. He says, Philemon, you're really defined by your love and your faith. Love says, I want what is best for this person. Not what's best for me, but what's best for them. Love doesn't excuse wrongs, it longs for wrongs to be made right. And faith says, God will do what is best through this. And so he says, Philemon, because I know that you really want what's best for other people, you love them, and because you have faith that God is going to do what's best, he says, I know that ultimately you're going to forget. And in verse 6, he tells them that the, the more effective we are, that effectiveness comes from the experiences that we have in Christ or through Christ. By experiencing more of Jesus, we're going to become more effective in serving Jesus. And essentially what he's telling Philemon here is, by forgiving someone who doesn't deserve forgiveness, you're going to model Jesus, which is going to make you more effective in your walk with Jesus. 
The central message of the Bible is the gospel, the good news of Jesus, the, the revelation that God himself came into our world, and he didn't come into our world and say, wow, you really messed it up. I'm here to punish you for it. It's judgment day. Instead, he came into the world, and he laid down his life to die in our place, to set right what's wrong in us so that we might be with him. That's the message of the gospel. He forgave people who didn't deserve to be forgiven. And so when we forgive people who don't deserve to be forgiven, we're like Jesus. We're experiencing what Jesus experienced. We're becoming like him, which is going to make us more effective in living and loving the life that he did. Living and loving people like he did. If we've experienced the unconditional love of Jesus, we can show the unconditional love of Jesus to other people when they hurt us, when they betray us, when they wrong us. And he says here in verse 7, he says, I have experienced great joy and encouragement because of your life. And the people around you have been spiritually refreshed. The idea is their souls have been refreshed. Have you ever just had a day where you're so downtrodden, it just feels like your soul's been crushed? And then you probably had some days where maybe the sun is out, everything's right in the world, and you're just like, I have this joy. It's like my soul is just refreshed. And sometimes when I get away to the mountains for a day, and there's no cell phones around, and I'm in the quiet, I feel like my soul is refreshed. He says, the way that you love people, the way that you love gives me joy and encouragement and refreshes the spirits of everyone around me. Loving people, instead of harboring bitterness towards people, accomplishes three things. It spreads joy, it encourages people, and it refreshes people's hearts and souls. If we hold on to bitterness, it does the opposite of that. If we refuse to forgive, it sucks joy out of a room. Have you ever been in a room with somebody who's just so bitter? Like as soon as they open their mouth, you just feel the joy suck out of the room. It's just miserable to be around them. It discourages people instead of encourages them. And it doesn't refresh people's soul. It crushes people's soul. Our world needs more joy and encouragement and deep soul refreshment. And that comes as you and I practice forgiveness. That's what puts those things into the world. When we practice forgiveness, Paul says, people will have joy and encouragement and their souls are refreshed. And so Paul gets to his request. He, he wants Philemon to forgive Onesimus. And he says, you know what I could do? I could say, I'm Paul. I started all these churches. I wrote a big portion of the New Testament. Jesus appeared to me in a vision. Listen, I'm Paul, and I could command you to forgive Onesimus. I could just tell you, I'm the Apostle Paul. You're going to forgive him. But Paul says, I don't, I don't want to do that. I want you to want to do it. I want you to want to forgive most people, when they look at the Bible, when they think about the Bible, they're like, that's the book of a bunch of commands. Like a bunch of dusty old commands telling me what I can and I can't do. But God's never looking for blind obedience. He doesn't want you just being like, keeping all the rules, checking all the boxes. He wants to change your desires, not just your behaviors. And I think sometimes as churches, this is where we, we get things wrong. We start to use guilt to change people's behaviors, but we never really change their heart. We never really change their desires. But what Jesus wants to do, he wants to use grace. The fact that he loves us and that he died for us, he wants that to change our desires. As, as we have experiences with Jesus, he wants to change what we want. You know, uh, in uh, late middle school, early high school, somewhere around there, my sister and I started being homeschooled. My mom started to homeschool us. And, um, Pretty quickly, 
I learned that I could get up at 6 a.m. and I could do all my work and have it done by 10 a.m. and I could have the rest of the day to do whatever I wanted. And so I would get up at 6 a.m., I would get started on my studies, I knew what I had to do for that day, I would get everything done, and then when my mom got up later, she would check in and make sure I was on track. And then by 10 a.m., I'd be out in the woods playing. And I'd be reading a book, or I'd be building with Legos, and I'd be having a good time. And my mom was like, you've got to get this much schoolwork done in a day. And for me, I was like, if I get it done early, I have more time to play. My sister was the opposite. She would wake up, and she'd be like, it's 11, 11.15, 11.30. She'd roll out in her pajamas, you know, eat some breakfast super slowly. She'd finally get out her first workbook, and it'd be like, 3 p.m. and she's just getting into her second subject, you know, and she'd be doing school all night and she's like, it's a drudgery, I have to get it done, and that's pretty much the two ways that you can look at obeying Christ. You can say, oh, I get to do this, I get to experience this, I get to learn these things, and I desire to get it done, or you can be like, ah, it's a drudgery, I have to do it, I don't want to do it, I'm going to drag it out and be as miserable as I can through it, but at least it gets finished. What Jesus really desires is for us to have a desire to want what he wants. In verse 9, Paul says, ultimately, I'm appealing to you on the basis of love. Paul wants Philemon to forgive Onesimus because he wants him to love Onesimus, to truly want what is best for him. In 1 Corinthians 13, another letter that Paul wrote, he lied, he lays out essentially what love is like. And we usually think of 1 Corinthians 13 as a, a passage to read at a wedding. You know, but he really wasn't talking about romance when he was writing it. He was talking about living your life for the good of others. And this is a paraphrase that I wrote of 1 Corinthians 13. Listen to this. Rather than hearing the churchy words, put this into your everyday life. If I am the most moving speaker in the world and I can gather a colossal crowd but I do not love the people who listen, I am nothing. If I am a genius and can understand the deepest mysteries of science and matter and mathematics, but I don't love people, I am nothing. If my faith is so powerful that my ministry is marked by miracles, but I do not love the people I minister to, I am nothing. If I give away millions to churches and charities, but I do not love the people in front of me, I am nothing. Love is patient with people on the road. Love is kind to the vicious co-worker. Love does not want what my neighbors have. Love does not let me talk about myself. Love speaks no gossip about someone else. Love is not easily angered. Love doesn't make lists of all the ways people have wronged me. Love never delights in evil. Love always delights in good, even when it is good for those who have hurt me. Love always protects. It always believes. It always hopes. Love, love never See, the real problem why we don't forgive is we don't love people. We, we don't love them. We can't love, though, until we've known the supernatural love of Jesus. If we're not experiencing that love, if we're not spending time in the love of Jesus, we won't replicate that love in our lives. Now, how do we spend time in the love of Jesus? We need to practice the things that Jesus did. He spent time alone meditating on the Word of God. Like, what does God mean when he says praying and talking to God, spending time with Jesus so that we can learn to love like he did. 
If we see in our life where we're not loving people, we're not forgiving them, we're wanting to hold on to these hurts, it means we haven't been spending time with Jesus to learn from how if we don't forgive, we become bitter. And we've all probably known people who are bitter, bitter. There's probably times when we've been bitter. And bitterness is when we're defined by our hurt. And forgiveness allows us to be defined by our healing. And so an application, as we close here, I think there's three questions we need to ask. First of all, is there someone you need to forgive? There might be somebody who hurt you and you're holding on to it. And I started thinking of just the people who I encounter maybe in the grocery store or in the community, people who have hurt me or betrayed me or have, uh, you know, just in some way deeply disappointed me. And I think, man, when I see them, I just feel all this emotion well up. I say, I need to forgive them. I need to make sure that I desire their good. Not just my good, but I truly want to see them become a follower of Jesus and to have a full and uh, impactful life. Is there someone you need to forgive? And number two, do you actually love people? I think it's really easy to say, yeah, I love people. But if you read 1 Corinthians 13 and you really look at what loving people looks like, do you love like that? And what I found is as I wrote that, as I, I read that passage in 1 Corinthians 13, what I realized was I need to spend more time in the love of Jesus so that I can love like Jesus. Because really my love is pretty narrow a lot of times. And many times I love myself more than I love the people around me. And then the last question I think we need to ask is, do you need to forgive God? Not that God has done something wrong, but there's many times that we blame God for things that have happened in our lives, and we hold on to a bitterness, like God has deeply hurt me and I won't let it go. And honestly, that would choke out all the joy, and you will be so narrow-focused, you won't see all the good things Jesus is doing all around your life. And if you do need to say, God, I forgive you, I'm blaming you for this thing that you did, immediately after that I would suggest that you ask him to forgive you for blaming him in the first place. So as we think about forgiving people, as we think about this process of forgiving people, here's a simple process that I use. First of all, the first thing I do when someone has hurt me deeply, I've been disappointed, I've been betrayed, I've been let down, the first thing I do is I begin to pray for their good. And sometimes when people have hurt you, it's easy to say, you know what, God, just crush them, help them to see where they're wrong, just, you know, take away their job, and really bring them to the end of themselves. But really, when I'm trying to forgive, the first thing I do is, I pray, Lord, I pray that you will bless them, that you'll be with them, that you'll be for them, that you will uh, surround them with your goodness. And I begin to pray good things for them. And then after that, I begin to seek good things for them. And that might be something as small as your neighbor who is constantly obnoxious or constantly destructive or loud and refuses to uh, listen to anything you say. That might be saying, rather than taking this trash and throwing it on their front porch so that they clean it up, I'm going to clean it up myself. They never know I do that. That's actually me doing a small act of good toward them. And I begin to seek their good. How can I make their life a little bit better? And then finally, the last is to do direct good to them. And I think sometimes one of the most healing things for me is when someone has hurt me deeply and I begin to pray for um, their good, I begin to seek their good, and finally I give them something good. And there's just something about giving someone a gift. And it truly helps bring that whole act of forgiveness in a circle to me. When I've, there's someone who has maybe betrayed me or hurt me deeply, and I say, 
here's a way that I can be a blessing to them. And sometimes it's financial, and sometimes it's something that they need, or sometimes I volunteer my time. And that does something in my heart where it changes the way I feel about them when I give something to them. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we're so grateful that when you forgave us, you laid down your life. You made the ultimate sacrifice so that we could know you. We're so grateful that you forgave us for the worst things we've done, the worst things we've thought, the worst things we've said, the destructive way we've treated your planet, the other people you've created, the destructive way we've even treated ourselves and the bodies that you've given us. We're so grateful that you've shown us kindness. And Lord, you invite us to live a life of forgiveness just as you've forgiven us. And forgive us, Lord, for so often ignoring your love and living lives that don't reflect your love out in the world. I pray that the way that we treat our co-workers and our neighbors, our friends and our enemies, will be so forgiving and life-giving that they'll know that we have known you. Lord Jesus, I pray that you will make Horizon a forgiving church, that you will make me a forgiving pastor, that we'll be a church and a people in this community that truly reflect you, that we do not say, we want you to pay for the wrongs that you have done, but instead we say we want you to experience the same good that we've experienced from Jesus, where he has given us good what we deserve. And I pray all these things in the name of Jesus Christ.